In his book, uh, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. And so we just want to put our attention, our, our, uh, focus our eyes on Christ this morning. <clears throat> but first, a McGrew family story. Uh, my youngest beautiful daughter, well, she used to be my youngest daughter, then we just uh, adopted a three-year-old who will be running around here somewhere. She'll be the cutest girl in the church, so just look for her. Sorry, whoever formerly had that title, just for this morning, it's just for this morning. <clears throat> but uh, my daughter, who is, is now grown and, and, and married, when she was 16, went to the DMV to get her license. And I think her mom had, had dropped her off, and she kind of came out with her head hanging and hadn't gotten her license, but not because she had failed the driving test, she had failed the eye exam. And my wife said, what? That's the world's easiest eye exam. Like, how is that possible? She said, I don't know. They just said I have to go get a note from the doctor, and that's what they said. And then I, I come back, and my wife said, okay, fine. Well, let's go. We'll go to the doctor, get a note that says your eyes are fine, and we'll come back. Except that it turns out the reason she had failed the eye exam was because she couldn't see. <laughs> and... Uh, so here we are, you know, these horrible parents that don't know our daughter is, you know, half blind, whatever, I don't know what the prescription was or the official diagnosis, but my wife said, why, why didn't you tell us that you couldn't see? And she said, I didn't know. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know I couldn't see. Now, I, now that I have the glasses on, I know, right? And my concern is that for many, they don't see Christ as he really is. We, we might know some facts about Christ, we might be able to uh, you know, espouse a few things that we've heard here or there, but to really look upon Christ and to know him as he is. Some people see Christ and they say he was a, a revolutionary, he was a, a good teacher, a, a moral man, he was a great philosopher or even a prophet, but they're missing who Christ said he is. And, and even those of us who know Christ in a in an intimate way, even those of us who are believers can so often take our relationship, our knowledge of him for granted. And so what a joy to come to these messianic psalms and be reminded of who God really is. A.W. Pink said that an unknown God can neither be trusted, served, nor worshipped. So this morning we want to look closely at Christ, to know him, to love him, to be moved to worship and to adore him. And so we're going to see Christ face-to-face. -face. We'll, we'll see Christ face-to-face -face one day, right? But in the meantime, we want to look at him. We want to study him and know him through his word. You can turn to Psalm 45. That's where we'll start out this morning. <clears throat> As you're going there, do you remember that after Christ's resurrection, Christ appeared to the disciples who gathered in the upper room? I know you know this story, but do you remember what Christ said to them? Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and 45. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Christ is speaking to them about the testimony of the Scripture and what the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, have to say about the person and work of the Messiah Specifically, he mentions the Psalms. And so here, as we come again to a Messianic Psalm, <clears throat> these are the, the Psalms, after all, are the, the most frequently uh, quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And, and 
We know the Psalms well, 150 Psalms that connect us to so many themes. We read the Psalms when we need to be encouraged. We need the Psalms. We read the Psalms when we need to relate to the psalmist's hardship and agony and frustration and trials. But one of the dominant themes in the Psalms is that of the Messiah. About 10% of the 150 Psalms are classified as Messianic Psalms. And isn't it amazing, you've seen this already with those who have shared with you, isn't it amazing that Psalms written hundreds of years before the time of Christ tell us in pretty impressive detail about the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and even the millennial reign of Christ and so much more. And as you heard uh, Troy read earlier from Psalm 45, it begins here with the title, A Song Celebrating the King's Marriage. For the choir director, according to the Shoshanim, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a song of love. And so this song is written by the sons of Korah for the choir director. It's a, a contemplative song or a, a mascal intended to, to produce thought or meditation. It's written to the tune of the Shoshanim. It's uh, uh, another word for that would be the lilies. I don't know what the lily tune is. If I did, I would ask Troy to come up and sing it. I think we could all enjoy that. But there are actually four songs that have this title, and it seems that maybe they are for springtime or for Passover season, a good time for something like this, a, a song of love. And so this is a song that is intended to grab your heart, to grab your affections, not in a, <clears throat> not in a um, way that would stir up emotions simply from the tune or in, a, in some kind of a false sense, but because of the truth that is so deeply rooted here, that we can't help but have an emotional response when we come face to face with Christ. So as we prepare to, to dive into this a little bit, I want to note some of what we'll, we'll leave on the table this morning. So within this brief psalm, there is some application for marriage, application for the church. But the most important focus, and really the, the pieces that we want to grab this morning, especially in the light of, uh, light of the, the way that the New Testament uses this passage, is this focus on Messiah. In fact, even Jewish commentators have had noted and maintained that this song was dedicated to the Messiah. Another says, this refers to the all-inclusive excellence of the Messiah. The kingdom of Messiah shall endure forever. Some in Judaism speak this psalm as a general prayer for the, the end of exile and the coming of Messiah. Uh, Professor Mike Block points out that the language of this psalm is very exalted, so much so that it seems to go beyond a mere human king. This king is fairer than the sons of men, verse 2. He's the one who possesses splendor and majesty, verses 3 and 4. His name will be remembered in all generations, and the people will give you thanks forever, in verse 17. But even more stunning than those things is what you see in verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. And so here our thoughts go beyond whatever the, the psalm might say in reference to any ordinary king to a view of the king of kings. His throne is an eternal one. His scepter is upright. 
He's filled with a love for righteousness and a hatred for evil. He's anointed by God the Father, and with joy he is exalted above all other kings. How does that sound? Does that sound like a kingdom you might want to be part of, that is something you might be longing for? I don't know your political persuasions, and there's a, a few decent candidates out there, but ultimately, this is the king. This is the candidate that we long for. This is the kingdom that we long for, a kingdom of righteousness led by God the Son. This king is God, the second member of the Trinity. The term for God here in this passage in Psalm 45 is Elohim, which is used over 2,300 times for the God of the Bible. Unless we have any doubt who's in view here, turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> the reference in Psalm 45 comes clear as we see the way that the author of Hebrews uses this. He quotes it directly. He says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So listen, there, there are questions about whether this is the psalmist's originally intended meaning or this is an example of inspired census plenier. But all of these questions aside, the author of Hebrews is inspired by the Holy Spirit to use Psalm 45 in this way, and it says a mouthful to us about who Christ is. No chapter in the Bible presents such a full picture of the deity of Jesus Christ as Hebrews chapter 1. And just look back with me a little bit to, to kind of bring us to verses 8 and 9 with some context. Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3 show Christ as the revelation of God to man the creator and sustainer of the universe. And we see this repeated throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 tells us that there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Colossians 1, 16 says, all things have been created through him and for him. So this is the Jesus Christ that we know. This is the Jesus Christ that we're able to come and enter into personal relationship with is a Jesus who is the creator of the universe? That that little baby in a manger was the creator of the universe? That that man who lived his life, who hung on a cross and died, was the creator of the universe? The book of Revelation calls Jesus the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And Paul writes to tell us that the pre-incarnate Christ was, was with the Father and shares his exact nature. And so here as we come to the topic of the person and work of Christ in Psalm 45 and Hebrews chapter 1, we come with a sense of awe. John Walbert, who wrote a phenomenal book, Jesus Christ Our Lord, just on this topic of Christology and, and who Christ is, says the impossible task of circumscribing the glories of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ stems from the infinity of his person and the omnipotence and omniscience of all his works. In other words, he's saying, this is why it's so hard to talk about Jesus. This is why it's so hard to write a book about Jesus, because there's so much to say. There's so much there. I think of the passage in, in Jeremiah where he says, behold, these are the fringes of God's ways. 
So even when we come to the Word of God and we see Christ for who He is, and we're kind of overwhelmed by Him and by all that He is and by what it means to, to follow Him and worship Him and enter into a, a personal relationship with Him, and yet we're just getting a glimpse of who Christ is. Imagine when we really see Him for who He is, when, when all of our sin has melted away and we truly stand before Christ. Walbert goes on, he says, from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus Christ is the most important theme of the Bible, and almost every page is related in some way to either his person or work. Christianity is Jesus Christ. No other subject is given more complete revelation, and yet the half has not been told. No other theme is more intimately related to the creation of the natural world, for all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made, John 1.3. The glories of the natural world therefore declare the power and Godhead of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. You look around you and you see the glory of God everywhere. You see it in nature. You see it in the stars at night. And you're reminded that Jesus Christ, your Savior, who Hebrews says, is not ashamed to call us brothers that we would have that kind of familial relationship, that kind of closeness with the God-man who is the creator of all things and sustainer of the universe. And so the rest of Hebrews chapter 1 just declares the, the superiority of Christ over the angelic hosts. And it does it by showing that his name, his authority, his power, his dominion all exceed that of any created angel. And we say, uh, yeah, we knew that, right? Well, yeah, you knew that, right? But he's writing to people in a different time and a different place. And for a Jewish mindset, right, angels are huge. Angels are the messengers of God. They are the ones through whom the word of God, the proclamation of God, the way of salvation, the way of living, all came to the Jewish people. Uh, notice in verse 8, where it says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And so primarily what's being espoused here in, in regards to the superiority of Christ is the deity of Christ. And we've already seen this in chapter 1. In verse 3, we're told that Christ is the radiance of his glory. So the Son is the, the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature. That is, he is he himself is God. Then we just saw that the angels are commanded to worship him. That's in verse 6. That would be an evidence of deity. But here, in verses 8 and 9, this incredible statement, so clear, so undeniable, and to really understand what's being said in verse 8, you just have to ask the question, who is speaking and to whom? God the Father is speaking, and he says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is one of the strongest affirmations of the deity of Christ found anywhere in Scripture. In his book, Jesus is God, Murray Harris says there are, there are seven passages that are firm, like clear, undeniable passages that declare the deity of Christ, that call Jesus God. Not that there aren't others, but these are kind of like the go-to top seven 
passages declaring the deity of Christ. By the way, how many clear passages do you need to establish a doctrine? Just one, right? I mean, just one. If I, if I can show you something in black and white, you are compelled by the authority of Scripture to believe it, right? To, to bow the knee to it. You don't have to always like it. It might be difficult to wrap your mind around. In fact, uh, things concerning the, the doctrine of God and, and Christology are always difficult to wrap our minds around because we have an infinite God, right? I want a God who doesn't fit in my box. That's exactly the kind of God that I need. If I can put God in my box and just kind of carry him around, then, I'm, then my God is not that much greater than I am. If I can comprehend God with my little pea brain, then my God is not that impressive. But we have this awe-inspiring, mind-blowing God. So Harris says that Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 is one of those seven verses, and this passage is key to answering this crucial question, who is Jesus? And this is an absolute watershed issue for the Christian faith. It was a question that was important enough to Jesus that in Matthew 16, he asks the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And we might think of the, the issue of the deity of Christ as a battle that's been fought in church history and won, and yet there are many today who continue to deny the deity of Christ, who continue to say things like Christ never made a clear statement of his own deity. Scripture never makes clear statements about the deity of Christ. And so I just want to quickly share these other six verses with you. If you're taking notes, these are great things to, to jot down, to keep by your door, just in case anybody happens to knock on your door that you need to have a conversation with about the deity of Christ. I, uh, I came home for lunch one day years ago, and there were a couple of young men from uh, another religion who were at our door, and I I have to confess, instead of thinking, oh, goody, an opportunity, uh, I thought, oh, there goes lunch, right? <laughs> but as I got closer to the door, I saw that my wife was already engaging with them. And as I got even closer, one of the young men turned around and in kind of, a, kind of an exhausted tone, he said, your wife knows a lot about the Bible. <laughs> I said, yes, she does. And I went upstairs and made a sandwich. I said, she... <laughs> She's got this well in hand. She's got it all taken, she's got it all taken care of. Lunch is, lunch is saved by my Bible-devoted wife. John chapter 1, verse 1, as you would expect, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? The Word was God. We know that Christ is God, but the reason it says was is because John is talking about Christ and His coming. So when you go down to John chapter 1, verse 14, it talks about the fact that He became flesh. And the fact that he, before he became flesh, he was God. And of course, he remains eternal, immutable God. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Christ is the word, the logos, the revelation of God to us in human flesh. John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. You say, well, that's just Thomas, right? Thomas can think he's God. That doesn't prove that he is God. But again, remember that Christ, after his resurrection, is appearing to the disciples. Thomas is absent on that occasion. He said, I won't believe in the resurrection unless I see it with my own eyes. And so in verse 28, after he's confronted with the resurrected Christ, Thomas 
answers and says to him, my Lord and my God, he makes this declaration of deity. And Jesus says, hey, hey, don't, don't say that. Don't do that. Don't, don't worship me. Well, that's not at all what Christ does. If Christ wasn't God, if Christ didn't claim any deity, what do you suppose he would have done on this occasion? occasion? But instead, Christ accepts the worship of Thomas. He says, blessed are those who do not see me, but believe this truth. Romans chapter 9, verse 5, whose, uh, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. You see in this section that to fulfill the prophecies to be the Messiah of Israel, the, the Savior had to become a man. So according to the flesh, he's the anointed one, that title Messiah, but he is God blessed forever. Just two more verses. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the, of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. And then 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. These seven passages give Christ the title Theos. And the question this morning is, will you accept him as such? Will you give him the honor, will you give him the worship that he is due as God? Such an important doctrine to know and defend. And in every century of the church, the church has been forced to deal with people who claim to be Christians while denying or distorting the deity of Christ, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and others that tell us he was a created being of some, in some sense. And sometimes I think, again, that we mistakenly think these battles are over and we don't have to worry about it anymore, but we have to be diligent. Not, to, not only to, to know and believe a doctrine like the deity of Christ, but to be able to articulate it, to be able to defend it, to teach it to our children. I'll tell you a story in relation to this. I was, <clears throat> um, I was in a church that had a, a Christian school attached to it. I was on staff at the church, but the school had kind of lost the head of their Bible department and had no one to teach some theology classes, and so I kind of volunteered to help out and ended up doing that for a couple of years, which was kind of fun because the thing I always missed as a, as a youth pastor, you know, I'm getting like a couple hours a week with these kids and I always wished I had more time. Well, now all of a sudden I had a lot of time. So I had students in my youth group that went to the Christian school. So they were with me Sunday morning for Sunday school. Uh, they were with me uh, Sunday evening for small groups. They were with me Wednesday night for youth group and then every day for Bible class. And I said, this is more Matt McGrew than anyone should have to endure. And my kids were like, we've been doing it for our whole life. Uh, <laughs> so one day I'm, I'm, I'm lecturing and we're in our, our section in our curriculum on Christology and I just kind of wander the class and, you know, lecture. That way I can, you know, bang on someone's desk if I need to wake them up or something. And, and in the middle of lecturing, I, I said something, uh, certainly uh, apparently something kind of profound, and it, and it caught a student's attention, and she had this kind of light bulb moment look. You know what I'm talking about, teachers? That moment that you live for, when it's like, oh, I think someone was listening, and they learned something, right? It's just that, that picture on their face that like, oh, I, I get it, right? And she said to me, she, she raised her hand, I, I called on her, she said, 
okay, so Jesus is God? I, I had the most amazing mixture of joy and grief that I've probably ever experienced in my life. Because here is an 18-year-old raised in our church, raised in Christian school her entire life, who just had this moment of understanding the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And on one hand, I'm, I'm so thrilled, I, I kind of I blurted out, yes, yes that's, yes, that's right, that's what I'm saying. But then, as I went back to the office later in the day, I, I thought, boy, have we, have we failed somewhere? Have, have we dropped the ball? Is this our fault? Is it, is it her fault because she, she wasn't paying attention? Maybe she just kind of finally had her, her eyes open to this. We need to be diligent to teach our children because it matters. James Boyce says it this way, what do, you, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Who is he? According to Christianity, this is the most important question you or anyone else will ever have to face. It's important because it is inescapable. You will have to answer it sooner or later, in this world or in the world to come. And because of the quality of your life here and your eternal destiny, because the quality of your life here and your eternal destiny depend on your answer, who is Jesus Christ? If he was only a man, then you can safely forget him. If he is God as he claimed to be and as all Christians believe, then you should yield your life to him. You should worship and serve him faithfully. And friends, we study Christ because we love him, because we're in awe of him. We, we worship him, and we are desperate to draw closer to him and to worship him as he is in spirit and truth. In addition to the seven verses that I mentioned, we see Christ's deity all throughout scriptures in his work. We mentioned he's the creator and sustainer, but also Throughout the life of Christ, he's healer, miracle worker, resurrected savior. He has authority over demons and diseases and death. Christ's deity is seen in his words. He repeatedly claims the titles of deity. He accepts the worship of others. And scripture explicitly says that the son is to be worshiped. Let not your heart be troubled, John says. Believe in God, believe also in me. And when we study the attributes of God, which we desperately need to, to, to give attention to, there's one thing that I, I have a habit of teaching on every year. It is to, to take our people through the attributes of God so that we might draw closer to him in worship because belief informs behavior, right? Belief informs behavior. The way you live, the way you think, the way you act, it, it, it comes out of what you believe. And so the more we know God, the more we draw close to him, the more we live lives of worship because worship isn't the 20 minutes before the sermon starts. Worship is all day, every day. C.S. Lewis says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You know this quote. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him for a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We'll look back in verse 8 then of Hebrews chapter 1. The context again is that Christ is superior to angels. And so we've certainly made that case well. And as I said, angels are a big deal in Judaism. They're mentioned 273 times in 34 books of the Bible. Scripture says they report directly to God. They're present at creation. They're created as eternal beings. They're created to glorify God as invisible spirit beings. They're innumerable. They're intelligent. I mean, on and on with all of the things that angels have done and and do and are created for. So they're kind of a big deal. And the point of the author of Hebrews is Jesus is a bigger deal. In the context of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, the point is that angels are servants, but in verse 8, the Son is God. So there's no comparison. We're not even comparing like creatures. When we talk about Jesus Christ, we're in a completely different realm. And who created the angels? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says that the Son is the one through whom the Father made the world. And so when we talk about the superiority of the Son, He is God, he's superior to angels because he's the God who created the angels. Now remember, we've been looking at this passage in Hebrews because it quotes our messianic psalm, Psalm 45. And and what does the word Messiah, when we talk about messianic psalms, what does the word Messiah mean? Well, Messiah means anointed one. It's Christ, the anointed one. And so look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, which quotes Psalm 45, 7. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Christ is anointed for service by the Father, and and the writer of Hebrews evidently is showing us here the three offices of Christ. Christ is prophet, priest, and king. We see Christ as prophet in verse 1, we see him as priest in verse 3, and we see him as king in verses 3 and 8. And the Father is anointing him for this purpose. And when we think specifically of Christ as king, because that's what Psalm 45 is is taking us to, is focusing us on, we just remember that the promises of the Davidic covenant the promise of God to to David, that the full revelation of God's work among them as king was reserved for the second coming of Christ, that Christ really will occupy the throne of David, that he will rule and reign on this physical earth as our king. What a glorious thing to look forward to when we get frustrated with this life, when we get frustrated with the systems of the world, when we desperately long for things to be made right, when we desperately long for political leaders who can, you know, do something well, we say, this is what we're looking forward to. This is what I'm looking forward to, is Jesus Christ ruling and reigning on the earth, that Christ who is the prophet, Christ who is our high priest, will someday be our king. And with his kingly office in view, we're reminded that he has the right to reign over Israel and over the entire earth. And Christ is the 
in Christ, the, the supreme dignity of these three offices is, is reached, is, is combined perfectly in one perfect man. Look back to Psalm 45. I noticed this week that Dr. Wearsby has a, a book, Prayer, Praise, and Promises. And I just want to share with you a, a little bit of what he said about Psalm 45. I think this is so good for us as we talk about just times of turmoil and frustration. And I'm just always so aware when I preach. Uh, you know, sometimes I know how our house went this morning. Uh, my teenagers are out of town this morning on retreat, so it was so peaceful this morning in the house. I really like, I really like it. My wife and I get along great when there's no kids around, uh, and and all the rest of the time too. Uh, so, but I, I'm I'm just always aware when I preach that people come to church with baggage, right? People come to church having had a week where where we go through we go through so much difficulty and hardship, and, and I don't know what weight everyone is carrying as they come in this morning. I, I was just praying with the men before church, and I just had this burden to, to pray for you all and just prayed, Lord, would you just allow us to, to set these things aside and worship you this morning? Just knowing that we're coming to the Lord's table, not set them aside in a, a dismissive way, but, but just, just to, to cast our, our anxious thoughts at, at the Lord's feet and, and be able to come and, and worship him without so much weight this morning. And Wearsby says of Psalm 45, whenever things are shaky around you, whenever you are afraid, just remember that God is on his righteous throne, which he deserves. I think this goes beyond the, the millennial reign to the eternal reign of Christ. Christ even seated at the right hand of the Father today. Wearsby says, many rulers in history thought their thrones would endure forever, but those thrones were toppled. In fact, we have to search through history books just to find the names of long-forgotten kings and queens. Not so with Jesus Christ. His throne is not ruined by the ravages of time. It is eternal and righteous. It can never be overthrown by the attacks of men. Whenever our Lord, whatever our Lord does is right, he never rules unjustly. He never causes evil. His scepter is righteous. And so to fight against the throne of God is foolish because that's fighting against something that is eternal, righteous, and holy. God wants to rule in our lives. That's why it's important for us to bow before him and say, I crown you king of my life and you shall receive glory. you recognize God's authority in your own life? Philippians 2 says that one day every knee shall bow before him. Do you know Jesus as Lord of lords and King of kings? If not, I, I just desperately encourage you to, to bow before him now to allow him to rule your life. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Righteousness characterizes the throne of Christ because he is a, a righteous God. And how important it is. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before thee. 
And the Old Testament consistently describes God as just and righteous. And how desperate are we to have a righteous God? If we have a, if we have a God, if we have a Savior who is the creator and sustainer of all things, who is the all-powerful God of the universe, who is sovereign, which means he not only has the power to do anything he wants to do, but he has the right to do anything he wants to do. But what if we had all of this in God, but he wasn't righteous? To have an all-powerful God who is unjust? It's so important that Scripture says that he is Righteous, and it's such a contrast with what we see in the world because even Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, there is what? None righteous. Not even one. So our sin causes this separation between us and God, and the Bible tells us that there's nothing that we can do on our own to, to repair this separation, this chasm that's been made because of our sin. And since we're sinful and since we're separated from God, God has to take the initiative. And so these Messianic Psalms are, are speaking to who and what Christ has done. And to understand that when we see in Psalm 45 this description of the deity of Christ, what we're really being told is that Jesus Christ is theos and anthropos. He's the theanthropic person. He's the one who who came, stepped across the stars into Bethlehem and, and was born for us very God of very God, taking on human flesh so that he can live and die and be resurrected for us. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And this is the glorious theme that runs throughout the scriptures, all the way from Genesis chapter 3, all the way through the Psalms, through the entirety of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and into the book of Revelation where we see his glorious return, this theme runs like a thread, the glory of God and the redemption of mankind through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see the substitution of Christ on our behalf, that he paid the penalty for us, one in place of another. And again, when we talk about really seeing Christ for who he is, understand that what is required in response to what Christ has done for us is not a, not a knowledge of it, not the ability to rehearse or to recite it, but it is belief in it. It is the exercise of faith. It is to appropriate the work of Christ to yourself by faith to make Christ your Lord and to live your life in light of this truth. Religious practice and being a good person and baptism and keeping the commandments and going to church, none of these things, no combination of these things can remove the fact that man is a sinner and faces the judgment of God. It is only the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross for you that can make you right before a holy God. And Christ did everything that needed to be done to provide for our salvation. Well, just a couple more things quickly from Psalm 45. Again, we're not trying to focus on everything here, just 
those that might have messianic tones. Look at verse chapter 45, verse 17, which Troy read for us. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Go grab, a, go grab an incredible book by James Roscup, a great title, An Exposition on Prayer in the Bible, subtitled, Igniting the Fuel to Flame Our Communication with God. Just teaching you to pray from the Psalms. Wonderful. And in, in, in reference to it, he, he goes through Psalm 45 and verse 17 and the remembrance of his name. And he, and he talks about how, you know, we, we might remember these other kings. We, we remember David, we remember Solomon, we remember Hezekiah and Josiah. But then he says, to an even higher degree, the principle is true of Christ, the greater king. Believers appropriately thank him in every prayer. And then let's just end at the beginning. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verse to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. The psalmist's heart is overflowing. His tongue, he says, is the scribe's pen. And all of us, Christians long to proclaim the glory of God. And if we long to proclaim the glory of God, we understand what Charles Wesley wrote. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. And so can I just encourage you, don't be quiet about who you are in Christ. Don't be quiet about your Savior. Don't be quiet about your story and about what he's done for you. Just proclaim it. The psalmist is using every faculty to extol the glories of God. And for those of you who have embraced the gospel, live each day in light of the greatness of Christ. Live lives that worship him for, for who he is. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for these reminders about the great God and Savior that we have, that we serve, that we follow. Pray especially, Father, for anyone who does not know Christ that they wouldn't be able to lay their head on their pillow tonight without thinking about how desperately they need to know this God-man and to experience forgiveness in him. It's in your name we pray. Amen.